Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here with our guest today, Rachel Gilson, who has a special role in the leadership team of theological development and culture with the Parachurch Ministry crew. She's written a terrific new book entitled Born Again This Way. Subtitled is particularly arresting, I think, coming out, coming to faith, and what comes next. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us and to, to talk a little bit about your book. We're anxious to hear you spell out a number of things that you uh, talk about in the book. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So tell us just briefly here, the, the book is the story of how you came to faith and the conflict that ensued with your sexuality. So just briefly summarize for our listeners the, that story of how you came to faith and the conflict that that created. Yeah, so, you know, I grew up, uh, like, you know, many people, (laughs) around churches, but actually not myself in church. So by the time I was a high school student, I had, I sort of discovered two things about myself. One, I was really interested in the world of ideas. And two, the way that my female peers felt about other guys was actually how I felt about other young women. And so with those two discoveries in the mix, I kind of developed a a pretty hard anti-Christian edge in my life, because from my perspective, I thought Christians were people who didn't like to think for themselves or didn't know how to. I've since discovered, actually, Christianity is the greatest intellectual tradition of the world, but, you know, as a teenager, you don't always have all the information. Uh, and, And on the other hand, I also understood that really every faith, probably, but Christianity in particular, was really against me in my sexuality. You know, this was back in 2001, you know, when Will and Grace was still edgy, not nostalgic. So (laughs) I kind of just picked up from the air that, you know, marrying a woman wasn't something that I maybe would ever be allowed to do and certainly wasn't something that was accepted by people of the faith. So by the time I went off to college um, in Connecticut at Yale University, I really uh, had developed a strong bias against Christianity. But Showing up at that place um, really shook me up in a couple different ways. One, I realized, oh, goodness, I wasn't the smartest person in the room anymore. Turns out a lot of really intelligent people gather at Yale University. So that kind of uh, knocked me down a peg. And then also I I broke up with my girlfriend at the time. It was very dramatic, as teenage breakups often are. And kind of as the dust settled over those two things... I was kind of going through an identity crisis, and it wasn't like, oh, I need to turn to Jesus, but I do think in that um, period, there was an openness to new ideas. So I happened to be sitting in a lecture one day. I was taking a philosophy course through the Western canon, and it was our lecture on Rene Descartes, and they were talking about how he develops a proof for the existence of God from that statement, I think, therefore I am. And I remember sitting in the audience thinking, that's a really stupid proof for the existence of God, and it's still uh, not my favorite. But uh, I also wondered, gosh, what if there are better proofs for the existence of God? And, you know, I'm, a, I'm an older millennial, so naturally I went to the Internet to try to figure out uh, where, I could, where I could find these answers. And over and over again on my random Internet searches, I, I kept coming back to reading about Jesus, and he was so much more compelling to me 
than I had ever assumed. It kind of at that point, I kind of pictured Jesus as a, like an ancient George W. Bush wrapped in a toga or something, <laughs> which was not a particularly uh, compelling image to me at the time. But as I was actually reading about Jesus, I was like, goodness, um, this is a much more compelling picture of a person, even if at the that time it just seemed like a character. But I felt like my sexuality was still a wall. And the only two people I knew at Yale who identified as Christians were these two young women who were dating each other. And one of them was training to be a Lutheran minister. So I thought, well, maybe maybe they know something I don't, you know. So I went to them and asked them about it. And they sort of very pleasantly explained to me that it had all been a terrible misunderstanding. You know, the Bible actually supports monogamous same-sex relationships. And that idea was very interesting to me. And I remember they gave me a big packet of information explaining how to really interpret um, those passages in the Bible. And I took it, I mean, I love a packet. So I took it back to my room and I was ripping through it. And it did make a lot of sense. But when I was actually pulling up on the computer, the verses it was claiming to interpret, I just thought, gosh, I don't, I don't think these actually connect. And I kind of felt duped a little bit, maybe. And put the question to a side, you know, like, nah, there's no, there's no space in this religion for someone like me, even if I wanted to be in it. But soon after that, I happened to be in the room of an acquaintance who was a non-practicing Catholic. And I saw on her bookshelf um, a volume, which I now know is famous, but didn't at the time, called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Wow. Um, and I really wanted to read the book, but I was too embarrassed by my interest to ask her for it because, you know, I was this good, strong atheist. So I just stole the book. You know, it's not hard to do. <laughs> and I put it in my bag and I happened to be reading it between classes one day in the library because it was much easier than my homework. And while I was reading it, I was suddenly overwhelmed with, oh, my goodness, not only does God exist in like a, you know, store brand kind of God way, but the God who made me exists, the God who's holy exists and and i'm in big trouble you know i i'm sexually immoral i lie for fun i'm a cheater i'm reading a stolen book like there's just all the evidence was clearly in the guilty category right and i and i was afraid but at the same time i also realized part of the reason jesus had come was to place himself as a barrier between god's wrath and me and that the only way to be safe was to run towards him not away from him. And so I sat there for a moment thinking, well, I don't want to be a Christian. Christians are lame. You know? <laughs> but at the same time, I was like, well, goodness, I can't, I can't pretend this isn't true just because it's inconvenient for my life. Like that would be the height of stupidity. So I, um, you know, I sort of closed my eyes and said, okay, fine, I'll be a Christian. Uh, and then I, and then I packed up and went to class. So that was really my entrance into uh, the body of Christ. <laughs> That's such a fascinating story. And uh, Rachel, I remember the first time we met at that brainstorming session in Venture at the Barner Group, instantly just could tell you're a thoughtful person. And this thoughtfulness about your faith and sexuality continued even after you became a believer. There was some tension that was there. Can you, can you describe what that experience was like for you? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I had just recently read you know, walk, working through that packet from my friends, um, that the Bible said no to same-sex lust and sexual and romantic relationships. So I, I felt pretty clear what the Bible said. But the real turmoil early in my Christian walk for me was that I didn't understand why God said that. And this mm. was before the phrase love is love, you know, became like a charm bracelet. But it was functionally that statement that was pressing on me. I couldn't understand why uh, 
a relationship, a romantic relationship with a woman would violate anything ethically wrong. Like I just didn't get it. And so I, I started to, you know, I wanted to just debate with God, you know, if he could, if he could give me the reasons why he said this, that I would obey with, you know, perfect joy and accuracy, which is ridiculous. But when you um, bargain with God, you're often ridiculous. And I remember at that stage, really what the Lord pressed me on was, hey, what if the most important question isn't why am I asking this? Though I, I don't think it's unimportant. What if the most important question is, can you trust the one who's asking? Because if you're only willing to obey when you understand and when you agree, how have you not really made yourself God? And, and I, pr- I felt pressed again and again to go back to that story in the Garden of Eden because it's, you see this wonderful world that God has created for Adam and Eve, and he just gives them one prohibition. And you, it would be understandable, right, if he said, here's your one rule, guys, don't murder each other, right? We'd get, murder, we intuitively understand is wrong. In fact, if someone doesn't intuitively understand that, you know, we encourage them to go seek help. But I was really challenged by the fact that Actually, the first prohibition that God gave to the humans, really on the face of it, didn't look that bad at all. He said, don't eat this fruit of this tree the day that you eat it, you're surely going to die. And it's like, even vegans eat fruit, you know what I mean? Like, what what could possibly be wrong about that? And I thought, gosh, maybe our life is supposed to be by faith and not by sight, even before sin entered the world. Like, maybe... Maybe God's rules actually do flow from our ability to trust him as a person and not just what we think of those rules. And the way the serpent pressed Eve on that fruit and the way she had to go to her dating, you know, it looks good. It's going to be delicious. It's desires to make me wise. She's got all this stuff on the one hand. The only thing she has on the other hand is God's word warning her not to do it. And she weighed them in the balance, um, And we all live downstream of the decision that she made. And it felt so similar to the way I was weighing what I saw about sexuality. And it forced me again and again, really to the question that I think is fundamental for all of ethics, which is, can we trust him? And I think in the person of Christ, I have the answer, yes, I can trust him. And it's not just that he was willing to die for me, but even the fact that he came at all, he was under no obligation. I mean, he could have condemned me. I would have stood there in front of him and I said, yes, you're doing, you're doing the right thing. Like, I am a sinner. But he, he decided to be sent by the Father. It was a, a whole operation, gracious, to bring me in. And if, if I can't understand him as fundamentally for me, then I don't think I'm reading the scriptures correctly. And, and that really helped me reorient the question because what really bothered me was God's words about sexuality seemed both cruel and arbitrary. But if his character is neither cruel nor arbitrary, then somewhere I've gotten the link wrong. Hmm. Rachel, I, it's, I think it's very encouraging to our listeners to, to hear that even after you came to faith, it was still a bumpy road working out some of these things with regard to your sexuality. You, you tell the, it's a very moving story about how you tell uh, how you how you ended up leaving a longtime partner in order to be faithful to Christ. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that experience was like, and it, it sounds like that was some of the, the cost of following him. Yeah, and, you know, there's not only the leaving, I I did have to leave an important romantic relationship 
more than once, actually. You, you referred to my early road as bumpy. I sometimes refer to it as an open dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes as my 35-year-old campus minister self, when I think about my 19-year-old new Christian self, I, I wonder if I would have thought if I was going to make it. You know? <laughs> like, it, was, it was touch and go there for a while. Um, because even even after coming to faith, there was there was another young woman I met at college, who I really fell in love with and struggled with the question of is this love which is right in front of me? How can I say no to that? Um, it is palpable. It's desirable. Um, how do I say no to that for an invisible God um, who I don't who I don't know? very well yet. And so part of my wrestling was trying to figure out um, who owns me? Like, do my desires own me or does Christ own me? Um, who's more truthful to me? Is it is it my experience of love or is it my experience of, of the Lord who both knows me uh, fully, even better than I know myself, and loves me still? Because... Um, to pretend that human relationships don't meet deep needs, you know, it's not, it's never been for me about trying to deny that there is some type of life found in those relationships. There really were some good, some good things, even if perhaps some of them were a little bit counterfeit. So part of my Christian survival for myself, and also part of how I've tried to minister to others, is trying to look at um, what we really desire and not just shout the word no at it. I don't think that's ever helped anyone, you know, mm. but I think it is trying to look at those things and say, what are the promises that are being made to me by, by this temptation or even by this, you know, just by this scenario, what are the fears that it's trying to alleviate, And are those valid, um, are those valid ways to get those needs met? Because God did make us for relationship. He made, He designed us for intimacy, both in friendship um, and in and in other ways. And so it was really about evaluating: um, one, do I need sex and romance to be a full adult human? Because that's certainly what culture tries to teach me, and often what the church tries to teach as well. And um, you know, are there are there ways that I'm not actually getting from the Lord and from his people and from his word uh, things that, that he's designed to meet my needs, you know, because at some level for me, it was like a fear of if I don't take care of me, no one's going to take care of me. So I need to grasp this mm -hmm. thing that feels good right now. Um, and instead trying to loosen that grip and say, well, maybe the Lord really does want to take care of me. It's, it's been really helpful for me both in the past and even recently that parable in Matthew where Christ talks about the man who found the treasure in the field and in his joy, he went and sold everything so he could, he could buy the field. And I think at times it's important for us to discuss the cost that a lot of disciples who experience same-sex attraction face to follow Christ fully. But at the end of the day, um, when, you really, when you've met the Lord, you're able to you're able to sell everything because of the joy of what you've actually found. So I don't want to I don't want to downplay that tension as well. It, it was difficult saying no to these other relationships, but I've continually found in Christ a 
deeper and better love. You're married now to a man named Andrew, have a six-year-old child, and mm-hmm. you talk about Six and a half, that's six, important. Though. Oh, yes, that's a very important correction. I, I get it. I have a seven and three quarters There you go, child, that's right. So, um, yeah, you describe in the book how kind of your same-sex attraction continues. Um, would you talk about just w- what that what that's like being married to somebody with same-sex attraction, what challenges it brings, and how marriage is about love but not necessarily primarily about romance? What does that look like for you? Yeah, so it, it was really interesting. I, I don't know that I could have anticipated being uh, married to a man early in my Christian faith. I think I just sort of default assumed... I guess I'll be single. It, you know, when you're when you're that young, you're not necessarily thinking in the future in that sorts of ways. But as Andrew started to pursue, we we met on a mission trip, which is like so evangelical, stereotypical. <laughs> I can barely handle it. Uh, but but as we as we met and as he started to pursue me later, I was like, oh goodness, what do I do with this? Because on the one hand, I mean, if you ever met him, he's he's just like one of the most lovely human beings you could ever encounter. And even when I met him when he was a 19 year old, I thought this guy, he's not ripe yet. You know, he's going to make a perfect middle-aged man. Like he is going to be <laughs> the platonic ideal of a husband and father. Um, on the one hand I could see that he, he had everything he needed to actually fulfill those roles. Well, we had the same love for Christ, our worldviews lined up. We both wanted to go into missions and I really did have an affection for him. I really did you know, love him as a brother. But as we got near, uh, you know, got into dating and drew near to each other, it was like, I was trying to say, well, am I attracted to him? And and as I thought about it and talked about it with my friends, I was like, I, I do think there's something real here, almost like a little flame, you know, but kind of a, a little flame, like you have to protect from the wind with your hands cupped around it, like, ooh, gotta make sure this doesn't go out. And when I thought about my previous romantic relationships, those had felt more you know, with, with other women, more like what you encounter in movies or songs, right? Not these little flames, but like giant <laughs> conflagrations, you know, like these uh, fireworks and butterflies in your stomach and all those things. And I was like, um, gosh, like everything I've been taught leads me to think that, you know, that thing, that big explosive type of thing is really what you're supposed to found a marriage on. So really what it did was make me maybe go back to the scriptures and think, well, uh, what does the Bible say about this? And as I looked at scripture, I discovered, wow, marriage seems to be about the gospel. Marriage seems to be designed to communicate about God's love with his people. And um, romance, I guess, sure, could be a part of that, but but maybe it's not actually necessary. Uh, maybe the ability to commit in faith, to give yourself totally, to build a family to build the gospel where you are in partnership, maybe those are actually the important aspects of marriage. And I, I do think sex is an important part of marriage. Even just looking at 1 Corinthians 7, that's pretty clear. So I don't think people need to feel pressured to get into marriage if they really have no attraction for someone of the opposite sex, right? There's sometimes been in the church a strong pressure to marry as if that will prove that you're faithful, or even worse, a pressure to marry as if having enough sex with someone of the opposite sex will make you straight. And so I knew that both of those things were unbiblical and really dangerous for me. But I did realize, well, gosh, these other purposes of marriage, if God has given me 
um, some measure of sexual attraction to this man, and I really do think we could do this gospel life together, and, and I love him. And I think we have the security to enter into this, because the reality is every single one of us has two options for faithfulness when it comes to sexuality. We can be faithfully single, or we can be faithfully married, and God can equip us for either of those vocations, no matter what our attractional pattern is, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like you could be attracted to men or women or both or neither or potted plants. Like on some level, it doesn't matter. If (laughs) God's called me to singleness, then by his word and his spirit and his people, he will equip me to live that life with faithfulness. And if he's called me to marriage, well, I don't need to be attracted to all men in order to be married to this one man. He will give me what I need. And honestly, every married person at some times experiences a sense of attraction to someone who's not their spouse. It's our role as faithfully married Christians to fight that, to say yes to the Lord and no to our temptations and to say yes to the gift he's given us in our spouse. So on some level, I don't actually feel like my marriage is very different from the marriage of my peers. We, we fight very similar battles, as it were. So sometimes people can maybe over mystify this type of this type of scenario. And and I do think there are pressures that come in on these marriages from some of the bad ways people have entered them that create problems down the road. But honestly, being able to look soberly at what marriage is and look at Andrew and myself and really ask if we think that's the right option for us, I I kinda wish more straight people would take that road into marriage sometimes. You could you get Uh, tricked by your hormones into a marriage that might be slightly unwise for other reasons, you know? So there's, I think there's actually been some benefits. I've I've often suggested to the the people who do premarital counseling among our seminary students that uh, to be sure and ask the kingdom-based questions about why you're you're deciding to marry this person, that it's not not all about romance and feelings and attraction, but there has, there have to be kingdom reasons why you're making that decision. So that's right. Rachel, you spelled out, you began, I think you hinted at a couple of things here that I want to be clear about. You mentioned in your book that uh, the sort of the, the big three goods of marriage, procreation, pleasure, and partnership. Uh, I, I think most people think those are the only goods of marriage, but you suggest <laughs> that, they're, that they are not the main thing about marriage. So let, let's be really clear about that. What is the main thing about marriage that the scripture teaches? The main thing I believe about marriage that scripture teaches is that marriage is designed to illustrate in living, breathing pictures all over the world, God's relationship with his people. It's not the only thing that illustrates God's relationship with his people, but it's one of God's favorite metaphors for what his relationship with his people is like. And so if marriage is supposed to be faithful, well, that's because God's relationship with his people is faithful, and we are supposed to have a faithful response to our God. If marriage is supposed to be the beginning of a household by both biological reproduction and adoption, well, that's because God's relationship with his people founds a new household. It's generative. Uh, If marriage is supposed to be the context of, of sexual pleasure and intimacy, that's only because God's relationship with his people is deeply intimate and deeply pleasurable. And, you know, of course, we see in Scripture over and over again, marriage is for male and female. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Well, he wouldn't need to in that context. And he goes out of his way in Matthew 19 to explain again to his audience who would have agreed to him that marriage is male and female. And that's 
because male and female represent these two parties of redemption. They're not interchangeable parties. They, they actually play different roles and they represent different characters. And part of the beauty is that uh, marriage represents that deep chasm that was bridged by Christ to get um, from us to God and from God to us. And so I think when we, when we pretend that our embodied selves, sexed selves don't matter, we're deeply undermining that beautiful vision that male and female are supposed to play in marriage. And it's, you know, sometimes in our churches, we can act as if, um, you know, gay marriage is the very worst thing that could happen for marriage, because, you know, it does undermine this piece of marriage that sex differentiation points to God and his people. But we also have to remember that Straight people are really good at trashing marriage all on their own. You know, we <laughs> think about what up. faithfulness is. I don't know if people have noticed, but straight people have a really hard time with faithfulness. Like we just, um, I think we forget sometimes that every single one of us experiences and expresses our sexuality in ways that dishonor the Lord and that fall short of him. And every single one of us need the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. question for you specifically related to uh, what you say is the nuclear family is a temporary picture but the church is permanent can you describe what you mean by that why that's so important for people to understand today I think it's important for a number of reasons I glad I'm glad you brought it up um, we see you know the family is clearly a blessed unit when we look at the scriptures uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament Marriage is held up as a good and honorable thing. Children are considered a blessing for so many reasons. But one of the difficulties we've had in our culture right now is we kind of treat marriage and family as the varsity option, which then leaves singleness in this weird JV form or like freshman team, you know, where you don't even you don't even get called. But what we actually see in the new covenant is that singleness is now brought to a brand new dignity and honor um, that I think we need to recover as the, the family of God. Because um, when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, or when it comes down to us, uh, we're all going to be single. Jesus is pretty clear that we no longer have human marriage. And we're also all going to be married. Um, we all participate as the bride of Christ, and you know, sometimes if that makes you know men uncomfortable to be part of the bride of Christ, it just remind us that women are called the sons of God. So it all you know, it all equals out eventually. <laughs> that's in, true. In these types of things, but so so, so we have it, full gender fluidity. Huh? Yeah, that's definitely the point that we should take from this. Absolutely right. Um, so we we've got a we've got a future where every where everyone is single and where everyone's married. That means the families here are little signposts, right? They're pointing to the real thing. But that if we're single here, we're not we might be missing out on the signs, but that doesn't mean we're missing out on what's actually coming. You know, a single life is actually prophetic in a sense when it's lived for the sake of Christ. It's saying I'm betting my life on the resurrection. I'm betting my life on the fact that the real marriage is coming and that the church here is the beginning of the family that's going to be fully expressed there. I mean, we're told that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're told that we're born again to enter into this kingdom. So I think there's a lot of fruitful opportunity for the church to reflect on 
the beauty that both singleness and marriage uh, speak to about what the gospel is. You know, that there's something about the single life lived for the sake of Christ that can communicate a hopefulness and the worthiness of God in ways that marriage doesn't actually have the opportunity to. And I think maybe we've just missed that opportunity. Rachel, one final question here as we as we wrap up. You have you have a lot to say in the book about uh, what's called reparative therapy. Uh, in fact, you refer to it as a as a false gospel. Can you just briefly explain what what is involved, what reparative therapy is, and why you refer to it as a false gospel? Yeah, and you know, I was recently corrected by an acquaintance of mine where she pointed out that sometimes the umbrella of reparative therapy gets used to refer to a lot of things that maybe don't need to fall under that umbrella. But the way I was referring to it in the book is um, a form of therapy that was particularly prevalent in the 80s and 90s, but, you know, still continued past then, the goal of which was really to try to make people heterosexual. Um, So there were softer versions of this sometimes. Some of my friends who went through some of these therapies, it was really more just a place of processing. Nothing nefarious happened, right? But there was a lot of pressure to kind of try to notice if you were becoming straight at all and to be able to quantify it and to wrap it up. And then there were other forms that are much more brutal. People, you know, being hooked up to electrodes or to try to shock being gay out of them or whatever, Um so some, a lot of different methods, but really the goal was to try to make you straight. And um, I just don't see in scripture where our goal is to become straight. Now, I want to be clear. I do think my same-sex attraction is a result of the fall. I, I do think, in a sense, it's disordered. I don't, I don't think that um, it would exist if I hadn't been born into sin. At the same time... I think it's a distraction to try to make myself straight because straightness is not equal with holiness. We covered this when we talked about faithfulness, right? Like you're just potentially launching yourself into different sets of sexual sin. If I, if I focus all my attention there, I'm distracted from the real, um, the real work of relying on the Holy Spirit for faithfulness where I am, no matter what my temptations are. Because I think um, I want to develop my energy towards um, where I where God has really placed me, and to be able to say yes to Him and no to temptations. And there are times when God does change people's attractional patterns. Like that, that happens to people. I think it shows His power over even biological forces. You know, people people have experienced that. But I think for many of us, He allows us to remain with the experience of same-sex attraction because by being able to say no to romantic or sexual relationships with people of our same gender, because we're saying yes to Jesus, it points to his worth. And I, I think that that's just as beautiful, maybe even more beautiful in this culture than demonstrating his power. I think God's power is extremely valuable, but the fact, I mean, in this culture, it's almost like being gay makes you a, a hero on some level, you know? It's, it's very, yeah. it's valorized in certain ways. And so for, for anyone to be able to say, sure, I experience those attractions, but Jesus is much more appealing. 
I mean, what a testimony that is to the watching world. Rachel, this has been a fantastic interview. It's been just as thoughtful as I expected after meeting you and uh, reading your book. And by the way, I, I teach class here at Talbot on biblical sexuality, and I've written a book on same-sex marriage, so I have read dozens and dozens of books on all sides of the issue. And your book, Born Again This Way, is fantastic. I've read it a couple times, highlighted it, underlined it, shared some of the insights with my wife. And we just really, really appreciate you coming on. So I want to commend your book again, uh, which is Born Again This Way by Rachel Gilson uh, to our listening audience. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Rachel Gilson, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.